Hello and welcome to Three Worlds Podcast, Series 2, Episode 8. So I'm going to continue talking a little bit about um, ritual objects today, kind of carrying on from last time, and then we'll probably wander into some other things. Who knows what? Who knows where? I just set out, plod, 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 foot after foot, and where I end up, nobody knows, including me half the time. Anyway... Um, I was thinking about the stuff that I'd said last time about purpose and um, in a way I didn't really talk about how one could work with a purba or how I work with a purba and um, that sort of brought up another thing for me too uh, which is about the use of visualization. So I'm going to just talk a little bit more about purbas. Now one of the things that I do with them on a very regular basis, is work to pin down and immobilize hostile, provoking spirits that can be around people. In Tibetan traditions, there is a sort of um, type of spirit. Okay, just briefly sidetrack. In Tibet, there are lots and lots and lots of subclasses of spirits. And I think that that would have been the case probably in our culture too, but we've lost a lot of those. So we just tend to think of spirits and we don't have designations for different sorts. In Tibet, they have a wonderfully rich uh, variety with, with separate designations and types of spirits. Now, I'm not saying that you should adopt all of those Tibetan spirits and those Tibetan spirits are the, you know, the, the absolute correct way that the universe works but it gives food for thought about the different types of spirits and helps us perhaps develop our uh well taste buds i guess it's like developing our palate between the different flavors or being like an artist and being able to differentiate between slightly different colors and to have words for each of the slightly different colors makes it a lot easier Anyway, in Tibetan traditions, there's a type of spirit called a gelpo. And a gelpo is often a spirit which provokes. It provokes emotions like fear and dread. It also provokes by bringing certain forms of illness to a person. So a lot of my work with a Puraba is actually working at pinning down, preventing and clearing and protecting people from Galpo. And to do this, I work a lot with visualizing. Now, visualizing perhaps has got a bit of a bad press because people might think that it's a new age thing. I certainly did, actually, if I'm honest, before I got involved in traditional Tibetan forms of practice. You know, the thought of visualizing stuff, well, it's all in your mind, isn't it? What's the point of doing that? Actually, it's, it's really, really important. And it's a major part of a very ancient tradition. So if I'm working with a purba to pin down a gelpo spirit that I feel is manipulating a person by creating drama in their life or creating fear or anxiety around them, I will visualize a like a like a fence of purbas around that person protecting like a fence, like a steel fence. And I will visualize placing purbas around them in each of the eight directions and also above and below. And then very often I will put additional ones outside of those eight in the four directions. So they kind of become even extra 
sort of fence supports, I guess. That's kind of how I think of them a little bit. Um, and by doing this, I am visualising the actual physical puraba being stuck into the ground all around them in these eight points. And I will also use mantras. Now, I've not mentioned mantras, but mantras are very, very important in Tibetan traditions especially, uh, and Nepalese shamanic traditions too. A mantra is a sort of power spell, and every being and every action have different mantras associated with them. So to say a mantra is a bit like activating the energy of that particular action, that particular deity, that particular spirit, that particular practice. It's a little bit like ringing a bell or playing a, a, a sympathetic string that resonates all the other strings on an instrument. It associates the kind of, oh, it's hard to put into words, but it's, it's like there's a vibration in the mantra. And when you say the mantra, your whole body becomes filled with that vibration and the universe becomes filled with that vibration and that vibration activates the practice or the spirit that you're working with and so each thing has a particular mantra for instance the mantra associated with doji purba who i talked about last week the uh, the spirit of the purba itself now Historically, I would not have been able to have shared that with you because you haven't been initiated into the practice. And even now, I've kind of committed a bit of a faux pas by doing it. However, I've decided to do it because, quite frankly, you can Google it. You can go on YouTube and see people singing the mantra and whatever. So I think, what the hell? You may as well know that it's there. I would suggest that you don't necessarily start using it or working with it in a kind of willy-nilly, ad hoc, kind of loose, flappy, about-in-the-wind way because it's a powerful mantra. But I wanted to share it as an example of a mantra. So if I'm doing purba practice, I'm visualizing, I'm probably holding a purba in my hand in, in a particular finger grip because there's a finger grip that one uses when one holds a purba. And that's, that's a mudra. Um, a mudra is uh, a, a hand shape and it's to do with energy channels in the fingers and uh, each of them being associated with an element, earth, air, fire, water and space. And so different finger positions represent the um, the energies of different elements. And you hold a purba in a particular way to activate different elements that you're wanting to work with. And I would say the mantra and I would visualize the purba doing its business, sticking it in the ground or even sometimes sticking it into a spirit, depending on the actual work that I was doing. So don't be put off by the concept of visualization if you have been, because it really does have an incredibly ancient history. Um, in the latest issue of Sacred Hoop, which at the current time is issue 105, uh, I have an article by my friend Nagchang Rinpoche, who uh, talks about one of his teachers who was a sort of weather magician and shaman figure uh, from Tibet who lived in Nepal after the Tibetan diaspora when uh, the, the, the Chinese invaded and Tibetans left the country a lot. And this this guy, uh, Nagpa Yeshi Dorje, um, 
talks about doing a battle with sorcerers um, who were creating storms of hail which were really damaging crops and being really, really destructive. And part of his work to banish them was that uh, he visualised throwing a kapala. Now, a kapala is a human skull bone. It's the, it's the, like a bowl. It's the top of the head. Uh, and he visualized throwing a kapala at them. He threw his own kapala up into the air and visualized it hitting them. And when he did that as part of the ceremony that he was doing to repel these sorcerers, um, lightning and thunder and hailstorms came so, so dramatically that they actually destroyed the sorcerer's house. It's a great story, well worth reading. Subscribe to Sacred Hoop, then you can get it. Hee <laughs> hee, that was a plug. Um, so visualisation is uh, is very, very important thing to do. Um, years back, before I even studied shamanism, I was taught uh, to um, visualise my aura, my energy body all around me, and to make sure it didn't have any holes in it, and to visualise it like a kind of protective cocoon or a spacesuit or whatever it was that you worked with that actually worked for you as a visualization and you checked it over to make sure there were no holes in it it was to keep it sort of um, whole and so visualization is really important I do a lot of protection work for myself by putting visualization around me um, sometimes it's purbus sometimes it's uh, it's other things it, it depends on the circumstances but good practice and the more you do it the better you get at it it's like a muscle I couldn't do it years ago. When I first started visualizing 40 years ago, I was really unable to see anything. And so um, I kind of thought I was doing it in a bad way. And perhaps I was back then. It's got a lot easier now. Now I can really slap a visual, solid, created image on something and work with it in a much stronger way. However, I'm going to say a little bit more about this from the Tibetan perspective. There's a wonderful concept in Tibetan Buddhism, which is called Vajra Pride. Vajra Pride means that you just are doing it. It's like if you're doing a practice, if you're visualizing and you can't actually do it very well and you're thinking, oh, I'm not very good at this. I can't visualize anything. You basically say bollocks to that. You bring forth Vajra pride and you just say, well, I'm doing it. I trust that I'm doing it. And it doesn't matter if I'm doing it badly because I'm full of pride. I can do it perfectly. And that's a good form of pride. It's a good form of pride because it doesn't make you weak. So I encourage you to develop Vajra pride in all of your shamanic practice and in all of your spiritual practices of other kinds. Developing Vajra pride is a really good way of actually kind of making it happen and helping you get strong in your practice. I hope that makes sense. It's a kind of difficult concept to talk about, but I think I kind of covered it. Basically, just, just believe you're doing it, even if you know you're not and be arrogant about the fact you're doing it. And that, that is Vajra pride, kind of. It's not about being arrogant to other people. It's about kind of having confidence that what you're doing is effective. Um, and you have to temper that with sensibleness. It's like uh, you really can't think, well, I'm going to do amazingly powerful magic here and just kind of assume that you are because you're probably not. But it's 
in terms of your day-to-day practice, like calling in the directions, for instance, if you're going to call your spirit helpers to you or call to the directions and you kind of do it in a drippy, half-hearted way, it's not going to work. So even if you're not very skilled at doing it, if you do it in a powerful way and believe that you've done it, then you have done it. Uh, And so that Vajra pride is a way of developing a confidence in your practice. And we need confidence in our practice, especially when we're starting out. But we don't need arrogance in our practice, which make us think that we're the bee's knees and the best magician in the world, because we're not. So visualisation, not just with Purbas, but with all sorts of other things. OK, let's move on to, um, to talking a little bit about shaman's mirrors. Bronze shaman's mirrors are... Uh, they're discs of metal. They're called tolly in Mongolia, and I can never remember the Tuvan word for them. Oh, my poor brain. It begins with a K. I can't remember it. I'm sorry. It just, I read it, people give it me, I look it up, and it just goes in one ear and out the other. Anyway, the Tibetan word for it and the Nepalese word for them are milong. And I, I tend to think of them as tolly, although milong and tolly are slightly different. So let's explain the physical differences. A tolly is a mirror that has a central sort of boss or lug in the middle of the back. It sticks out um, uh, and it's got a hole in it and you can thread a cord on that. That's the, the sort of Chinese mirror, which is generally the one that is found in Mongolia and in Tuva and in places in Siberia. In Nepal and in Tibet, they have the Milong mirror, which has many of the same functions, but it tends to have a loop at the top. And that is where you put the thread through. So it's suspended by this sort of lug at the top rather than a lug in the middle of the back. So that's really how to tell the difference between a tolly and a milong. So mirrors originated, well, probably in China. Um, certainly there's a history of bronze mirror making in China that goes back at least 4,000 years. And they kind of spread out into other parts around um, via trade routes, a little bit like glass beads were traded to Native Americans. So mirrors in China, the history of them, they seem to have been associated with ritual objects, even from way back. And I think the history of using reflective things is considerably older than that. The ancient site in Turkey, Katalhuyuk, is uh, an ancient archaeological site that has been excavated. It's uh, like a city, a primitive city, and it's around about 8,000 years old. And when they excavated, that archaeologist discovered lots and lots of uh, shiny reflective mirrors made of obsidian, which is volcanic glass. And the context that these mirrors were found in makes them look as if they were ritual mirrors uh, rather than kind of mirrors used for cosmetic domestic reasons. I think mirrors have always had a sacred context to them. It's something to do with the liminal space that is created by seeing a reflection. It's sort of like a glimpse into another world. You get the same around pools 
Pools and water have always been considered to be a liminal space, which is why in Bronze Age Europe, um, ritual objects, votive objects made of bronze like swords and other things were placed into pools of water, and now archaeologists find those. It's that a liminal space is between two worlds, and when you look into a mirror, the surface of the mirror is a liminal space because it gives you a view into this other world. And so it's a very early development uh, and mirrors have always been, I think, in that sort of sacred realm. So the original Chinese mirrors, which are the roots of shamanic bronze mirrors, seem to have been associated with protection. Um, they're often found in graves on the chests of people and there seems to have been some form of solar connection with them. It's like the brightness of the mirror was brought into the grave so that the person had the sun with them and that protected them. So a lot of ancient mirrors that one sees for sale in galleries and things are actually grave goods and you often see that they're corroded because, you know, they've, they've been in the ground for a long time. So that was the origin. And I'm sure there were other practices done with mirrors too in ancient China, but I'm afraid I'm not an expert in it. It's a vast subject and a very intricate subject. Uh, and there are some experts that devote their whole life to the study of ancient Chinese mirrors and write the most erudite books on the subject, which are incredibly learned and incredibly um, specialist, I think is a good way of putting it. Get alive, guys. Hey, I'm going to invent a new term, archogeekology. So mirrors, also because they're made of metal, had a magical quality. Metal was always considered, back in the early days, as it were, um, back in the good old days, uh, metal was considered to be a magical substance. It's like you got this rock, you got it hot, it made metal. That's pretty magical. And uh, so mirrors had that originally, and the smiths that made the mirrors, that made other ritual objects, or even just common everyday objects out of metal, were held in high regard. There's an old Evenk saying that the smith and the shaman come from the same nest because they're both seen that they have great similarities. They're able to kind of perform magic and transform things. So over the millennium, that's a difficult word to say, and over the centuries, that's a much easier word to say, the law and tradition of using Mirrors has developed in Mongolia and in northern China and in southern Siberia, that whole kind of heartland of shamanism. And now they are really important aspects of shamanic tradition. And most shamans work with them. And it's considered important for a lot of shamans to have quite a lot of them. Some shamans will only work with new ones. Some shamans quite like old ones. I've got a, a, a Dakhad shaman friend, uh, one of the, the tribes from the north of Mongolia, and they get quite freaked by my love of old mirrors. Now, some of the mirrors that I've got are almost 2,000 years old. Uh, my shaman friend is not comfortable with those, and we have kind of playful arguments occasionally about them because um, they like nice new shiny ones, which they have either specially made or they buy off the peg. In Mongolia, there are specific blacksmiths, shaman blacksmiths that people go to to have things made. 
So mirrors can be very ancient and they can be very new. It really doesn't matter. And um, they have a huge variety of uses. And it's a little difficult for me to share some of the teachings about mirrors because they are hidden teachings. They are closed teachings. Teachings have always been divided into two sorts, esoteric and exoteric. Esoteric, the real meaning of that means closed or hidden teachings. Exoteric means open teachings. So anybody can hear an exoteric teaching like um, there are four directions and there are spirits of the four directions. Or you can smudge somebody with burning sage and that is a good thing to do. Those are exoteric teachings. They are available for everybody. An esoteric teaching is a little bit like when I gave the mantra for Dorji Purba. That's an esoteric teaching that has become more accessible now. But originally, like I said, it wouldn't have been allowed. You wouldn't have heard it. I wouldn't have heard it unless I'd received the empowerment or until I'd received the empowerment because I do have the empowerment. So mirror teaching tends to be closed and it's closed to protect the teachings and it's closed to protect the people because the teachings and the practices are powerful and dangerous. It's not a power over people and keeping secrets just to be more powerful because we know and you don't. It's much, much more important than that. So there's some things I can say about mirrors and some things that I can't. In Tibet, Milong are often worn by the everyday person because they are seen as a protection which protects because it reflects back hostile intents, evil eye, if you like, evil thoughts, bad thoughts, whatever, of other people. And so a mirror is worn around the neck, which is very much the Milong, if you remember, has the sort of like a little lug at the top that you can thread a cord round. So they look a little bit like medallions and they can be worn around the neck under clothing or over clothing. And they reflect back harmful intent from other things, other people, other beings. So that's a very common or garden and very exoteric teaching about mirrors. Then there's a whole load of other stuff which I can kind of talk a little bit about. Mirrors are used to trap spirits in. Mirrors are a portal into the centre of the medicine wheel, into that place of power that all things emerge from. In Mongolian traditions, it's called the Gol or the Golmet. It means the very centre of the universe. It is... In tantric terms, it's the place of male and female that all things manifest out of because that's the battery that all things manifest from. So a mirror takes things into the centre and it can be used to trap harmful spirits. That's one of the things that I use a mirror for quite often. Um, And again, that ties in with visualising because you need to be able to kind of know visualize have vajra pride that when you're trapping a spirit in a mirror you really have done it because you don't kind of see the spirit disappearing into it like smoke well maybe you do and if you do can i be your apprentice please you visualize it you kind of know in your guts that it's happened and so that kind of visualization aspect of it is very important so a mirror is used for that I can share one sort of semi-esoteric teaching about mirrors, which is a good one, a useful one. If you work with a mirror, you can empower a liquid. 
to give to somebody that's a healing liquid. If you remember in the last podcast, I talked about one of the uses of a puraba, which is that you put the blade of the puraba into uh, like a cup of water or a glass of water and you stir it and you are empowering, probably by also saying the mantra, but you empower the liquid, you empower the water and then that can be used by somebody, they can drink it or it can be used as sort of like holy water for want of a better way of putting it. You can do exactly the same with a mirror. And again, this is a practice I often do. If you hold a glass of water or vodka, sometimes I use too, and uh, you put the mirror underneath it and you are using Vajra Pride to empower the water. You are, uh, I move the mirror all around it in different ways, clockwise all the time, because that's sunwise. That's the way the sun travels. So it's for life. And, um, you know, pro-life, if you like. Oh, no, pro-life, I better not use that term, had I? Whole of a meaning. So you kind of are working between the mirror and the water, and you are sort of reminding the water that it is a sacred thing, and you are empowering it with, um, well, the Mongolian and Tibetan words translate as wind horse. In China, it would be qi, um, is it key in Japan? I'm not sure, but it's that prana. It's that energy of the universe. You are bringing energy out from the center point of creation and you are imbuing the water with it so that then when the water is drunk, it becomes empowered and it is a healing for people. Himuri in Mongolian, Lungta in Tibetan. It's the same word for prayer flags. Prayer flags are wind horse. Wind horse is the power that shamans cultivate. Uh, they, it's like chi. A lot of the practices that shamans do is so that they can raise their own wind horse so that they can be powerful. And wind horse is that kind of cosmic power. Hey, it's cosmic, man. Um, which is chi, which is prana, which is the energy that is used for doing all sorts of bits and pieces. Mirrors also form in much the same way as the Tibetan people might wear one round the neck, they form part of the shaman's armour. Now, armour is a concept that we obviously think about with sort of knights in armour and things like that, and I guess sort of tanks too, you know, armoured vehicles. But uh, shaman's armour is their costume, is the ritual clothes that they wear. And um, Ritual clothes of a shaman are made up of lots and lots of different items. A lot of them are metal, some of them are not. And they don't defend the shaman against sword attack or knives or anything, but they do defend it against spirit and spirit powers and hostile intentions from other shamans. So every aspect of a shaman's armour is considered to be alive. Um, and mirrors are considered to be alive because of that. And like I've said in a previous podcast, all things are considered to be alive and also have a kind of group spirit as well as an individual spirit. So I'll talk more about costumes perhaps another time because it's a vast subject and I'm aware that time is getting on towards that great gong in the sky that cuts off podcasts. But um 
Mirrors are wonderful objects, but again, this is only a tiny fraction of all of the ritual objects that are used. Like I said before, there are staffs and there are sort of wands and there are special whips and there are manjigs and there are all sorts of things. So uh, we'll get to some of those perhaps. And also I wanted to talk perhaps next time about some of the, the more harmful things that you need to be careful of when you do ceremony. I've got a few stories that I was talking with somebody last night about and I thought they might make a good podcast. So we'll see where that goes. So for now, I'm going to call this a day. And so I'm going to say thank you very much for listening again. Uh, my email address, nick at sacredhoop.com. Org. My website for this podcast, which is also the gallery website for all the ritual objects that you can look at, including mirrors and pulpits, of course, threeworlds.co.uk. And that's the number three, not the word three. And if you want to subscribe to Sacred Hoop and read all about Nagpayeshi Doje, the uh, sorcery battle with the sorcerers that made hail, then you can get that at sacredhoop.org forward slash offer dot html and that will give you a lower price subscription all right thank you very much i will see you next time ciao